Well, if you have your Bibles again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 42. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 566. If you're a guest, we've been working through uh, this book and we've come to the final sermon this morning in Job chapter 42. And while you're finding your place there, I need to say a few words in way of housekeeping before we look at the text and get started. And the first thing I want to say to you is thank you for uh, joining me on this journey through Job over the last 12 weeks. I appreciate so much uh, your attentiveness and being engaged in the sermons, uh, for the feedback, for the encouragement, for all of the men who have uh, stepped up and taught in my absence and those who've worked uh, tirelessly behind the scenes so I could just focus on this sermon series. I thank you for joining me on this journey. I have about five weeks left of school and I have a great deal of writing to do. And so I would appreciate your continued prayers over the next five weeks as I try to get across the finish line. Uh, today, if you are on the church email list, you will have an email uh, with the post-sermon series survey. Now, don't pull it up on your phone now. Wait until the sermon is completed, okay? And there is a cover page, and there's instructions on what to do with the survey. If you filled out a paper survey, you'll find stacks of those uh, out here to my left or in the lobby in the back, and you can grab one of those as you leave today. The most important things that I need you to remember are this. If you didn't fill out a survey before the sermon series started, please don't fill out a survey today, all right? Secondly, make sure that you use the same four digits of your phone number that you used on the first survey for the second survey, all right? And then I think all the other instructions uh, that you'll need are on the cover page. And if you have any questions about that, you can uh, let me know, and I'm glad to help you with that. And I appreciate you taking time to fill out that final survey. Well, I think that's enough of all of that. Let's look at the text, and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject. This is how the story ends. Job chapter 42, and we'll begin in verse 7, and this is what the Word of God says. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namatite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. Conclusions are difficult to write. And I must confess to you this morning, of all of the elements of writing a sermon, one of the elements that I struggle the most with is the conclusion. And so whether it's the conclusion to a sermon, a book, or a movie, an author can feel a tremendous amount of pressure bringing the sermon or the story to a satisfying ending. After all, how the story ends stays with us long after the service is over, the book is closed, and the theater has emptied. Critics of the book of Job attack the epilogue that we've just read, arguing that the restoration and reconciliation that takes place in these final verses is manufactured, unrealistic, and too good to be true, especially after all that Job has experienced and gone through. These detractors to the book say real life doesn't work like this. Only in Disney movies do they end happily ever after. And as a result, many contend that these final verses are actually a later addition to the book, and the proper ending of the book of Job is found in Job chapter 42 and verse 6, where Job repents of his sin, covers himself in dust and ashes as a sign of his repentance, and sits on the ash heap, despising himself. But friends... As you and I have just read, that is not how this story ends. As you will see, this epilogue serves as a fitting conclusion to this grand book. All of the speeches of Job's friends have ended. God has spoken from the whirlwind, and Job has responded. And now we have God's conclusion to the story. These verses show us God's view of Job, God's view of his friends, and all that has taken place in the life of Job for 40 chapters. 
That's why Dr. Stephen Lawson described this epilogue this way. In the final scene, God restores all that was taken from Job's life. He restores it all twofold. God is a good God. He is a God of great mercy and grace. And God couldn't hold back his love any longer. And he restored Job to all that he had lost. This same God will more than make up your losses too. It may happen in this lifetime. It may happen in the next life. But God will restore every loss. His grace is immeasurable. His mercy is inexhaustible. And his love is inexpressible. So, let's see how the story ends. And the first thing I want you to see is found in verses 7 through 9. And I want you to see that the Lord restored Job's friends. And he begins in verse number 7 with a rebuke to his friends. And the Bible says, And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now Job's repentance in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, that we studied last week, serves as the hinge on which the story turns as God responds in grace to the humility of Job's heart. And after accepting Job's repentance, God turns his attention in verse 7 to Job's friends. Now you'll notice something very important that is absent in verse 7. The name of Elihu. God does not rebuke him. God does not require an animal sacrifice from him. And God does not command Job to pray for him. And all of this suggests that God was pleased with the counsel of Elihu. But the same could not be said for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And while God's words in verse 7 apply to all three of Job's friends, you'll notice in verse 7 that God only addresses Eliphaz directly. Now this is an indication, as we've said way back at the beginning of our study, that Eliphaz was probably the oldest and the wisest of the three, and he probably served as the leader and the representative of all of Job's miserable comforters to whom God would rebuke and deliver his message. It is clear from verse 7 that God has a negative assessment of Job's friends and of their counsel. The Bible says in verse 7 that God's anger burns against Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because they have not spoken of him what is right. But you'll notice in verse 7 that not only did God condemn the counsel of Job's three friends, in verse 7 he also vindicated the words and actions of Job by saying that his servant Job had spoken of him what is right. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about what is happening in this scene. 
Can you imagine with me this morning, if you've been on this whole journey through this book, the shock on Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's face as God confronted them and rebuked them. These men were angry, and they were stubbornly convinced that they were absolutely right, and Job was absolutely wrong. And the longer the debate ensued, the angrier they became. How in the world could God say that Job was right and they were wrong? That's what they were thinking. How could God say this? You might be thinking the same thing this, this morning. After all, Job has made some pretty bold statements toward God over the course of the debate. Remember, he questioned God's justice. He doubted God's ability to rule the world properly, and he despised God's silence. Additionally, if you'll recall, at times Job's friends, in the midst of their wordy counsel, actually said some things that were true. So how was Job right and his friends so wrong? Well, I believe the answer to that question is found in the difference in their approaches toward God. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had embraced a theology known as the retribution principle, an ancient form of modern-day prosperity gospel and theology. A false theology that says that God always blesses the righteous and God always punishes the wicked. And therefore, because Job is suffering so immensely, their only conclusion was that Job was a terrible sinner. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were trapped in their rigid theological system. And they refused to listen to their suffering friend and his objections and conclusions to their counsel. And they, on top of that, even gave Job a list of suggestions of sins that he could confess to God. They boxed themselves in in their theology and they boxed God in in his sovereignty. And as a result of their pride and their narrow theological system, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, listen carefully, misrepresented the character of God and the ways of God. They limited God's sovereignty to their theological system. And they left no room for the attributes of God that balanced out the wrath and the justice of God. In their theological system, they had no room for the mercy of God. They had no room for the grace of God. They had no room for the love of God. They had no room for the patience of God. And they had no room for the compassion of God. All they could see was a righteous, wrathful God who punished sinners. That's why Christopher Ash said, The friends have a theological scheme. A very tidy system, well-kept, well-defined, and entirely satisfying to them. But they have no relationship with the God behind their formulas. 
There is no wonder, no awe, no longing, no yearning, and no prayer to meet and speak with and hear and see the God of their formulas. No, they are content with the rules of the system they have invented. For them, God is a dead doctrine and an abstract theory. Do you know what he was saying? That Job's friends were more satisfied with their system and their theology than they were with God. And as a result, they misrepresented God and His character in His ways. They cared more about their system than they did their suffering friend. Job, on the other hand, God says, spoke rightly about him. Now, this doesn't mean that God condoned everything that Job said and did in response to his suffering. Remember, in the first six verses of chapter 42, God called Job to repentance for his sinful response to suffering. The vindication that God gives Job in verse 7 should be seen as an affirmation that Job spoke rightly about God when he refused to confess sins that he didn't commit. God is saying that Job was right to declare that he was suffering innocently. And even though his words were raw, brutally honest, and confrontational, Job continued to maintain his innocence. He refused to confess sins that he had not committed. He believed that one day he would be vindicated and he was determined to hold on to God through all of his pain. And as a result, God vindicated Job. Christopher Ashe is helpful once again. Listen carefully to this. It is so good. One of the great motives of Job's laments is his longing to bring his perplexity to God himself. Job cannot be satisfied with any system. He must know God. He must speak to the living God. He must, for nothing else will satisfy him. This heart longing is the core reason why the Lord says Job has spoken rightly of him. And while the friends want a system, Job wants God. And friends, that is the difference. That is why Job was right and his friends were wrong. And isn't the implication of this verse and this truth obvious to all of us? If we're not careful, we will fall into the same trap that Job's friends fell into. We will be more concerned about holding on to a theological system then we will be about defending and honoring and representing God properly. My friends, theological systems are helpful, 
but they don't define the sovereign God of the universe. You need to be more concerned about holding on to the Bible and what the Bible says about God than to a particular system of theology. You need to be a biblicist. And that will keep you from making the same error that Job's friends did. And so in verse 7, he rebuked them. In verse 8, we see their reconciliation with God. The Bible says, Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 8 reminds us that there is hope of reconciliation for every sinner. That you are never too far gone from God's reconciliation. The psalmist testifies to this reality in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. And this is what the psalmist declared. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. There is hope of reconciliation. And you'll notice in verse 8, because Job's friends did not speak what was right about God, God commands them to offer up a burnt offering of seven bulls and seven rams as a blood sacrifice to cover their sins and to receive forgiveness. And it's apparent from the language of the text that the amount of the offering that Job's friends were to offer is a reflection of the degree of their folly and their sin. And the size of this sacrifice is also a reflection of the enormity of God's grace. Because as Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the level of their offering for forgiveness is only matched by the level of the grace that God extends to them. You'll also notice in verse number 8 that in addition to the burnt offering, Job must pray for his friends. Because Job's prayer is the only prayer that God will accept because only Job... As the author says again in verse 8, spoke what was right about God. Now you'll notice something very interesting in the text. And it's so subtle that if you're not careful, you'll just read through verses 7 and 8 and you'll never pay attention to it and you'll miss it. God uses one particular phrase four different times in verses 7 and 8. Do you see it? It's the phrase, my servant. It's used four times, and it signifies God's acceptance of Job. This phrase is a title of dignity, and it's how God describes other key figures in the Old Testament, including Moses and some of the prophets. And if you add this repeated phrase in verses 7 and 8 
along with the wording from God at the beginning of Job in Job chapter 1 and verse 8 and in Job chapter 2 and verse 3, you see that the Job at the beginning of this book is the same Job at the end of this book, a servant who is, who is highly regarded by God. And I want you to also notice in verse 8 this morning that with this language that the author is using, Job pictures for us a sketch of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this with me for a moment. God refers to Job four different times as his servant. And this is the same title that the prophet Isaiah uses to describe Jesus Christ. Job, like Jesus, is the suffering servant of God who is called to intervene on behalf of all those who have sinned against God. And you'll notice also in verse number 8 that God specifically called Job to a priestly role in the restoration of his friends. Job is to serve as a mediator between God and his sinful friends. And by receiving their sacrifices and by praying for them, he mediates between God and his friends. Jesus also serves in this priestly role as he reconciles sinful man to a holy God and as he intercedes on behalf of his people in prayer. But unlike Job... Jesus does not merely receive the sacrifice that covers sins. Jesus is the sacrifice that covers sins. And in this way of reconciliation, Job points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I ask you this morning, if you realize that if you have turned from your sins and you've trusted in Christ's death on the cross, do you realize this morning that God no longer deals with you according to your sin? He dealt with His Son according to your sin so that He could deal with you according to the riches of His grace. But if you don't know Christ this morning, God indeed, friends, is still dealing with you according to your sins. And would you see, as Job's friends saw, that, Je- that Job points us to Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Well, they were not only reconciled with God, in verse number 9, they were reconciled with Job. The Bible says, So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Could I ask you to use your imagination again this morning? Can you picture this scene that we just read in verse number 9? Can you imagine what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were thinking as they carried all of those animal sacrifices to their friend, the one whom they charged with wrongdoing, the one whom they, for all intensive purposes, persecuted and ridiculed and gave a hard time. And not only did they take those sacrifices to Job, they had to offer them before Job, and they had to ask Job to pray for them so they would be accepted and forgiven by God. 
Can you imagine what those three men were thinking? And can you imagine in that moment what Job was thinking? Probably the same thing that has just popped into your mind as you've been imagining this scene play out before you. And you'll notice their obedience. The Bible says that Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far did exactly what the Lord told them to do. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. But here's what I don't want you to miss this morning. Not only were the friends reconciled to God, they were reconciled to Job. You say, well, how, do you, how can you say that, Pastor? The text doesn't say that in verse 9. Oh, you got to think about the text for a minute. you got to meditate on it. You can't just read through it real fast and move on to verse 10. you got to think about the implication of verse number 9. How could God accept Job's prayer unless Job was right with God and Job was right with his friends? And we know from chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, that Job was right with God because Job repented and God accepted Job's repentance. You say, well, how do you know that Job was right with his friends? The text doesn't say that Job got right with his friends. How do you know that, Pastor? I know that because the Bible says that God accepted Job's prayer. And if Job was still holding on to bitterness towards his friends, if Job was still holding on to unforgiveness towards his friends, the Bible is very clear in Matthew chapter 5, and in James chapter 5, and in Matthew chapter 18, and I could give you other places, 1 Peter chapter 3, that if you're not in a right relationship with someone, your prayers are affected and hindered. That's why James says only the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So how do you know that Job and his friends were reconciled, Pastor? Simple. Simple. God accepted his prayer. And if he hadn't forgiven him, God wouldn't have accepted his prayer. And that leads me to ask you this this morning. Is there someone that you need to forgive? It is quite possible in a sermon series that has been solely focused on suffering that there is someone in this room, more than one person in this room, that is under the weight of suffering from the hands of someone else. And instead of extending forgiveness, and instead of wrestling with God and seeking a place in your heart and in your soul where you can say you're truly free and you've truly forgiven, you have instead nursed the grudge. You've instead withheld the forgiveness. You have instead held on to bitterness and fed that bitterness. And under the weight of the suffering, the bitterness and the unforgiveness is making the weight even greater. Would you see this morning in the life of this suffering servant of God, Job himself, the freedom that forgiveness brings? Do you know how Job could kneel before his friends after all that they said about him and did to him and offer a holy, righteous prayer 
on their behalf to God a prayer that God accepted? Do you know how he could do that? He was free. There was no unforgiveness or bitterness binding him inside. God had done a work in his heart and his life through all of his wrestlings and all of his suffering. And he extended forgiveness. What about you? Who do you need to forgive today? This verse also reminds us that all, listen, all of the suffering and offerings of sacrifice of the Old Testament pictured and pointed to the New Testament and the death of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. Through all of these Old Testament offerings and all of these sacrifices, God was showing the people of the Old Testament that they could do nothing in and of themselves to make themselves right with God. They needed a substitute. And the animals were that substitute. And just as the blood of animals in the Old Testament satisfied the wrath of God for sin and allowed God to forgive sinners in the Old Testament, the Bible says in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10 that when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, He was the once for all sacrifice to God for all of the sins of the world removing the Old Testament sacrificial system and all that it pointed to him. And the Bible says that after he offered himself on the cross for all the sins of the world, once and for all, the once for all sacrifice, he sat down behind, beside the right hand of God because the sacrificial work for sin was completed. And even... In these offerings that Job's friends had to offer to God for forgiveness, they pointed to the New Testament and to Jesus Christ. And dear friends, as sure as I'm standing on this platform this morning, I know, I know there are people in this room who have never turned from their sin and they've never trusted in Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross for you. You've never done that. And you hear the gospel preached week in and week out. You see the Bible lived out before you. You see everyone around you pointing you to Christ. And yet you refuse to receive him and come to him. Would you see how the offering of Job's friends points you to your need for a substitute? If they needed a substitute, you need a substitute. And that substitute is none other than Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord not only restored Job's friends, in verse 10 and in verse 12, the Lord restored Job's fortune. And I have good news for you. The first point was the longest. The rest of them are shorter. Verse 10, verse 12, the Lord restored Job's fortune. Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before now, some argue that Job's restoration in these verses to prosperity supports the retribution principle that Job's friends had held on to. And others argue that Job's restoration from God proves Satan's argument that Job would not worship God for nothing. 
but they're wrong. Ask this question of the text. When did God restore Job's fortunes? Do you know the answer? Look at verse 10. When did he restore them? Look at what verse 10 says. When Job prayed for his friends. After Job received their sacrificial offering. And after Job prayed for them. God restored Job and his fortunes. And this truth serves as a reminder that forgiveness opens the rivers of God's blessings to flow through our lives. Notice in the text carefully, friends, this is important. This is an important argument with the book. Job repented long before God restored his prosperity. Do you see it? Verses 1 through 6 are when Job repented. When did God restore him? Verse number 10. And Job repented in verses 1 through 6 without any indication or promise from God that God would restore him to blessing. And because of this, this dismantles everyone's argument about Job's restoration. Job proved he was a real believer because Job bowed down before God in his pain. And Job worshipped God because God is God. And God is worthy of Job's worship. Job never worshipped God for what he could get from God. And that is the point of verse number 10. And this restoration of Job, listen carefully to me, this is God choosing in his sovereign grace to lavish blessings on Job, not because God is indebted to Job, but because God is a generous, gracious, and glorious giver. God did not have to restore Job. God restored Job because God is gracious. Now notice the end of verse 10. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he did before. And look at verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Do you remember the beginning of the book? At the beginning of the book, Job had 7,000 sheep. Now he has 14,000. Job started with 3,000 camels. Now he has 6,000. In the beginning, Job had 500 oxen and 500 donkeys, and now he has 1,000 each. That's why the text says the Lord gave Job twice as much as he did before, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. The restoration of Job is provided not to answer all our questions about the specific suffering that Job experienced in his life. This restoration is provided to reveal to us an overarching and universal principle of suffering in the lives of every believer. By giving Job a double portion, God was showing that he is planning a disproportionate response of blessing for all who suffer righteously. In essence, the epilogue of Job 
particularly Job's restoration, teaches us the same principle that Paul teaches us in his second letter to the Corinthians. And listen to what Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is what I put in my notes. Suffering friend. Do you believe your affliction will give way one day to an eternal weight of glory? Do you believe that? By God's grace, persevere just a little while longer. And what your eyes will see on that day will replace every painful thought, every painful memory, and every painful feeling you experience today. There is an eternal weight of glory waiting for you if you're a Christian that can't be compared with your affliction now. Well, the Lord not only restored Job's friends and Job's fortune, in verse 11, in verses 13 to 15, the Lord restored Job's family. Look in verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. In this verse, we see that all Job's brothers and sisters and all who had ever known Job before his suffering began, they came to him. They ate bread in his house. Look at the text. They showed him sympathy and they comforted him for all the evil, all the pain and the suffering and the heartache that the Lord had brought upon him. Do you know what I see in this verse? That God restored joy and celebration in Job's life once again. Do you realize, friends, this is the first meal that the book of Job references since Job chapter 1 when Job's sons would gather their sisters together and have a celebration on each of their birthdays. And what this text is saying that as a part of God's restoration to his suffering servant, a part of that restoration was joy and celebration returning to Job's life. It's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. And weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And Job is experiencing that joy in this verse. He can once again celebrate and experience joy. And if God can do that for Job, he can do it for you. He can cause you to laugh again. He can cause you to smile again. He can cause you to celebrate and experience joy again. Notice verses 13 to 15. He's not finished with the restoration of his family. Job also had seven sons and three daughters. 
And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land there was no there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. We see in verse 13 that the Lord gave Job and his wife seven more sons and three more daughters. And some have questioned the text, well, if, if the Lord gave Job double everything else, why didn't he give him double kids? He did. You know where the first ten are? Heaven. He'll see them again. Job was restored double his children. And unlike Job chapter 1, where the sons were at the forefront of the story, at the ending of the chapter, the daughters are at the forefront of the story. They take center stage, and the author names them, emphasizes their beauty, and tells us that they received a great inheritance from their father. Jemima means the qualities of a dove. Keziah comes from a word that refers to cinnamon and spices, and it refers to charm and fragrance. And Karen Hapak literally means horn of a eye paint. Think of it as mascara that you use to highlight your eyes. It's a picture of attractiveness and beauty. And the text is telling us that this is the fruit of Job's suffering. Job is now experiencing peace like a dove, sweet fragrance of life like a perfume, and the beauty of life like eye makeup. He has God's peace, God's fragrance, and God's beauty shining all over his life. And notice in verse 15 that the Bible says that Job gave his daughters an inheritance. This is highly unusual in the culture of Job's day. Only the sons received the inheritance. And you say, well, why did he give the inheritance to his daughters? I have a thought about that. It's actually very simple. Job knew what it was like to experience grace. And once you've experienced grace, you want to extend grace. And so he extended grace to his daughters to receive something that they never would have received had he not given it to them. These verses remind us that those who have experienced the suffering of loss, listen. Are you listening, suffering friend? Those who have experienced the suffering of loss can rest in the grace of God that if your loved one knew Christ and you know Christ, you'll see them again. These verses also remind us that in our loss, by God's grace, one day joy and celebration will return to our lives because joy always comes in the morning. You can take comfort in that today, friend. Well, the Lord not only restored Job's friends, Job's fortune, and Job's family. Finally, in verses 16 to 17, the Lord restored Job's future. Look at what the text says. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Many scholars believe that Job was around 60 to 70 years of age at this time. 
And tradition says that Job lived approximately 210 years. And so you can see from the text that the Lord doubled the length of his life and gave him 140 more years after his suffering ended. Additionally, the Bible says that Job lived to see four generations in his family. His children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and his great-great-grandchildren. And notice how the author of the book describes Job's death very simply. He died an old man full of days. And did you know that if you research that phrase, an old man full of days, you'll find it's the same description that God uses over and over to describe his special servants and friends like Abraham, Isaac, and David. Here's what I want you to see in these last two simple verses of this book. Job's earthly life ended well. He was a man at peace with his God. He was a man at peace with himself. And he was a man at peace with everyone around him. What more could you ask for when you die? I love how Warren Wiersbe simply describes Job's death and relates it to you and me. This is what he says. We must not misinterpret this final chapter and conclude that every trial will end with all problems solved, all hard feelings forgiven, and everybody living happily ever after. It just doesn't always happen that way. Now listen. But this chapter assures us that no matter what happens to us, God always writes the last chapter. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid. We can trust God to do what is right no matter how painful our situation may be. He always writes the last chapter. And as long as there's still breath in your lungs, the book of your life and the last chapter of your life isn't finished. There's still hope. There's still opportunity for grace. There's still opportunity for forgiveness and salvation. Job ended well. Listen, I thought about this ending. It's so subtle. Like, I'm sitting in my chair saying, how am I going to end the sermon like that? That's a downer. How am I going to end a sermon like that? And here's what I want to do to end. I just need you to bear with me just another minute. This is actually the shortest sermon in the series, so we're good. We're good, right? We're good. I put five lessons in my notes that Job reminds us of to help us end well. Here they are. Here's the first one. This book reminds us that it is all about God and his character. This book really isn't about Job. It's about God and his character. Specifically, it's about his sovereignty over everything. About his providential working in our lives. About his justice. About his goodness. 
about his righteousness, and about his love. And if you want to end your life well, you'll remember those attributes of God. That no matter what comes in your life, God is sovereign over you. That no matter what you go through, God is providentially working in your situation, whether you realize it or not. No matter how bad you've been wrong, God is just. No matter how great evil swells around us, God is righteous and he will make all things right in his time. And he's good and he's gracious. Don't ever forget that, no matter what happens to you. Number two, because the reasons for suffering are multifaceted, we can trust God even in the mystery when explanations are missing. And do you see how point number one flows with point number two? You rest in God and who He is, and even in the mystery when you have no explanations, when suffering is multifaceted, you can trust this God that I've been proclaiming to you. He is big enough. Number three, the main question surrounding the book is this. When everything is taken away from you, will you still worship God for nothing? That's how you end well. Number four. Our first response to suffering in the lives of others should be the response of the ministry of presence. Go sit in the ashes with them and be quiet. And number five, because Job is a book of wisdom, We need to read and study and meditate on and think about this book not to find out why we suffer. We have taken a journey over 12 weeks. Has the book of Job answered why you suffer? I don't think that's the purpose of the book. It's a book of wisdom. We read and we study and we meditate on this book Not to find out why we suffer, but listen, friends, to prepare ourselves for when suffering comes. And if you want to end life well, because suffering will come to you, go back and read and meditate and study this book in preparation for your suffering. Well, this is how the story ends. But Job chapter 42 doesn't just tell us how the story of Job ends. This chapter anticipates the ending of every believer's story when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. This chapter is a picture of how the story of our suffering will end and the story of our everlasting joy and satisfaction in the presence of our Lord in the new heavens and the new earth will begin. There, 
all the former stories of our pain and our suffering and our loss will all be forgotten. For the one who promises this restoration is faithful and true. And all we, you and I, the suffering believers, can say to this future hope of restoration is, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And remember, friends, remember, God is writing your story. And no matter what He permits to come into your life, God knows how your story will end before it ever began. Let's pray.